1: Hey, this is Morgan Lee, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm an assistant editor, and today I am joined by Ted Olson. Hey, Ted. Hey,
2: Morgan. Good to be back on Quick to Listen. I always like it when Mark goes out of town so that I could hop on the podcast.
1: And good news for everyone listening to the show. You will also be here next week.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: So bonus Ted episodes. I actually feel like you come on a lot during the summer. Like last year we did that Olympics episode.
2: Yeah, it's fun. I like I like doing this.
1: Ted, who do we have joining us today?
2: We have Kevin Miller. Uh, Kevin Miller is pastor of Church of the Savior, uh, an Anglican congregation in Wheaton, Illinois. He is, in fact, my pastor at Church of the Savior. He was formerly vice president of Christianity Today and a longtime editor at uh, Leadership Journal, Christianity's sister publication. I have a lot of Kevin Miller in my life, and I like it. I like that. That's a (laughs) good thing. (laughs) Poor man. Anyway, you can also hear Kevin on our sister podcast, Monday Morning Preacher, from preachingtoday.com. So we're glad to have him, Kevin. Kevin. Uh, welcome back. Yeah, great to be here.
1: Wow, that was very unhyper response <laughs> from you. Well,
2: on Monday Morning Preacher,
3: Matt always introduces me as like with some slam, subtle slam, like <laughs> I'm his default guest host, meaning like I got stuck with you guest host. So I was expecting that. And when it was just this kind, charitable intro, I was stunned.
2: There you go. No, we actually <laughs> we actually bumped our uh, scheduled uh, guest and conversation today to, because I knew Kevin would be great for today's topic. What is that topic?
1: Eugene Peterson. Kevin, I'm really excited to hear what you're going to have to say about this topic. So let's get into it, everyone. Eugene Peterson has announced his support for same-sex marriage. The author of the best-selling Bible, Paraphrase the Message, and author of more than 30 Christian books, Peterson recently told Jonathan Merritt that he would be willing to marry a Christian gay couple if asked and was still pastoring today. Peterson also told Merritt on his Religion News Service blog, quote, I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, but now I know a lot of people who are gay and lesbian and they seem to have as good a spiritual life as I do. Peterson went on to say, quote, I think that kind of debate about lesbians and gays might be over. People who disapprove of it, they'll probably just go to another church. So we're in a transition. I think it's a transition for the best, for the good. I don't think it's something that you can parade, but it's not a right or wrong thing as far as I'm concerned, end quote. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll be talking about how Peterson's stance on same-sex marriage affects those who would consider themselves longtime readers of the message and longtime fans of Peterson's works um, and who also hold to a traditional view on marriage. Before we get into this topic, just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today, and you can order your subscription at orderct.com slash quick to listen. We just wanted to talk about something that's in the July-August issue, and since Ted is here, I thought he might talk about a piece that he edited What's the topic of this piece?
2: Yeah, I edited a piece by uh, Mark McMinn um, out at uh, George Fox in Oregon on the science of humility. We've done a number of pieces lately looking at Christian virtues through both a, a scientific lens and a biblical lens, and Mark... Uh, did a great job of integrating those two in, in his piece. Uh, social science research is learning about humility and also how that relates to what we know from Scripture about the one capital O who is humble.
1: Is there any weird or surprising takeaway or insight?
2: We well, have to read the article to find out. I'm not going to give away the surprise takeaway right here. No, it. it, well, it, it <laughs> no, I'm joking. I think the surprise is just how effective he is at, at showing what uh, social science can can't tell us, but also as a Christian psychologist, why he enjoys uh, connecting the dots between actually looking at Christ as the example of humility, uh, which is something that's hard to do quantitative testing for, and also what he can learn from quantitative testing. And it's real hard to get scientists or researchers to integrate those two things well, and I was pleasantly surprised to see how well Mark
1: did. That's awesome. All right, so if you want to read that article, whether you want to read it online or you want to read it in its physical form, again, go to orderct.com slash quick to listen order ct.com slash quick to listen and that will give you this piece i believe it's online title it's like why brilliant psychologists like me are now learning about humility it's something like that
2: it's a yes great title. above average yes
1: so before we hear from kevin we are going to have what we call our gut check about the news and so i'm just wondering ted if you can give us your Two cents first, and then I'll go, and then we'll hear from Kevin.
2: Um, yeah, and in one sense, disappointment was my initial response, but also, you know, not a lot of surprise for one thing. You know, I, I've just seen enough Eugene Peterson quotes that I thought, well, this is likely a view that he has, and also um, because it appeared on Jonathan Merritt's blog, it kind of that's Jonathan Merritt's. He's a he's a writer. For religion and service. Uh, it's kind of one of the themes of his blog is I'm going to go interview all these different Christians who might support same-sex marriage and ask them if they do. Um, and so I was like, oh, well, that's... <laughs> if Merit's interviewing somebody, it's probably going to ask him this question. So that wasn't a big surprise.
1: As far as my own reaction, I feel like I was not sure whether to be surprised or not, partially because I've not been exactly clear where Eugene Peterson sits in terms of the evangelical landscape, which is something that we talk about a lot. I will say that I've been exposed to the message for a very long time. I always found it very interesting. My grandparents read the message growing up, and my grandparents were people who grew up in the faith, and they loved reading the message. So that's kind of my primary exposure to him. And then I read the message a decent amount too. But I, I didn't necessarily know much about Eugene Peterson or read that much of him. And I've, I'm i really looking forward to this podcast just to kind of get a sense of who he is. All right, Kevin, we want to hear from you. And well, maybe before we hear from your reaction, maybe you can give us a little bit of like background about what your kind of relationship with Eugene has been.
3: Yeah, maybe I can cover both at once. I I felt deeply disappointed, really almost bitterly disappointed. And I would say even somewhat physically sick I think the reason is, is because Eugene is a hero of mine. I have read almost everything he's written. I've uh, visited him when he was pastoring at Christ Our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland, the church that he and his wife Jan planted. I've interviewed him multiple times on many subjects and many occasions. I've visited him and Jan in their apartment out at Regent when he was a professor at Regent in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia. And uh, he has been a pole star for my life. I mean. I think really part of the reason why I felt called into pastoral work and the reasons that I approach it the way I do is more due to Eugene Peterson than to any other single living person. And so I, I'm not kidding or being you know rhetorically generous when I say he's my hero. So I was deeply disappointed. And I'll tell you why I was disappointed. One was his answer, which is not in line with Judeo-Christian scripture or tradition. And if you can get the tradition and the scriptures to say that, you can get them to say just about anything, but more how he got there. Um, Eugene has written so beautifully in his Spiritual Theology series about how we listen to the Word— and he, he is a writer who engages Scripture at some of the deepest listening levels, and he is prophetic in his gift and temperament, as well as pastoral. So for him to say—I mean, he didn't reach these conclusions because of some deep engagement with the Scripture or the tradition. It was basically, I met these really nice gay people who really had a great prayer life and Christian life, and uh, so I just kind of went there. And, and, and then even to invoke the culture shift as though the fact that the ship has sailed culturally said as anything for us as a church. I was just like, Eugene, that's not how you taught us to discern these kinds of issues. And, and I say that out of love, but also deep disappointment.
1: For those people who are less familiar with his work, what are some of the, the main highlights of it?
3: Well, early on, he, he wrote a number of books using Scripture to understand the pastoral role. Working the Angles is a brilliant and, and seminal work. Uh, his, his book on uh, Jeremiah gets there a little bit, Run with the Horses, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Uh, which is uh, on the Psalms of Ascent. Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work Under the Unpredictable Plant. I mean, I can just keep going. The Contemplative Pastor. Uh, and then, of course, he wrote the really classic um, spiritual theology series later in his life, uh, which include Eat This Book and and I think at least four other titles. And um, so... What was the heart of those books? The heart of his, uh, those books is on recapturing the pastoral ministry from and this is somewhat ironic in today, in light of today's news, from its cultural accommodations. He was defending the classic biblical definition of the pastorate against this kind of marketing, church-growth-oriented, church-inc assumptions in which he believed pastors were being forced to become marketers and were losing the personal touch and the capacity to really do the things that he believes are essential to the pastoral role—and I agree with him—scripture, prayer, and pastoral direction i love eugene's works and to me they're as brilliant as prophetic as ever but we'll talk about how that shifts for many of us now
2: yeah a few people have been as uh, against the idea of relevance uh yeah as eugene peterson i, mean, I that... mean in
3: one in one interview he said relevance is a nazi word right <laughs> which obviously i've not forgotten that quote
1: <laughs> so then help me understand that relevance is a nazi word with his paraphrase of the bible
3: I think uh, uh, because he is trying to capture the freshness of Koine Greek, he would not see a contemporary translation as being relevant. What he would say is, is a capitulation to the prevailing values of the culture as being relevant.
1: Yeah. So uh, can you just maybe talk about how the message fit into his larger work and where his passion for that came from?
3: Yeah. Well, Eugene is a pastor. And so as a pastor, he began trying to Explain the scriptures to his people in a way that they understood that when, when the kingdom of God is being announced, it means right here, right now, as something we can all live into and enter. This is part of the pastoral vocation. And so Eugene found that his people weren't necessarily doing it when he read from the regular translations, and so he began four Bible studies, and sometimes in preaching, creating his own translations. It happens that he's a brilliant linguist and studied Hebrew and Greek with some of the best scholars of his generation, and he has a natural facility for language, as any of us who've read him will know. And so he was the perfect guy to start doing it. And then it kind of grew into this larger project and became, what, 15 or 20 years of his life, and today what I think he's probably best known for.
2: So 17 million copies of The Message sold so far. I just came across The Message Study Bible, this week, uh, which I, I I was a little surprised to <laughs> There's a a message study Bible. It just seems the study Bible aspect seems to go a little bit against the yeah the spirit of of the translation. But uh, but there there you have it.
1: Kevin, I'm just wondering if you have dealt with a type of tension before where a pastor or author that you have agreed with on almost everything has later that changed their mind on a stance that you felt was important and how that's kind of affected how you've incorporated them into what you've been reading or teaching on?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I'm still processing this one. I, I think there are two ways that as as Christians we can go when with this type of news and how it influences our ability to appreciate the works that these people have done. For me, I've already incorporated into my very life choices and practices the wisdom of Eugene Peterson on the pastoral vocation, so that cannot be taken out of me. And I I accept what Paul teaches in Corinthians, that we prophesy in part. And so although I believe Eugene rightly prophesied for most of his life on most subjects, I think he missed it on this one. And so the fact that he missed it and badly on this one and will mislead people, for which, sadly, he'll be responsible, uh, nonetheless... Uh, I think I will still be able to appreciate and take to heart his many brilliant contributions over the years. Now, I haven't always been able to do that, and I think we need to make space for believers for whom the associations are just too painful and too fresh. For I'll give you an example. I downloaded a worship song that is one of the most stirring and to me, meaningful worship songs I've heard in the last 10, 15 years. I downloaded it on my playlist, and I've i just played it over and over and over again, and I loved it every time. And then I discovered not so long after that that the person who wrote that song had cheated on his wife and was sleeping with some other women in that church and whatever, whatever, and it was quite disappointing to me. And i I left it on my playlist for a while because I was like, you know, I can still enjoy the creative gift of this person even though they felt—but what happened was every time that song came in the rotation, instead of me thinking about the exaltation of God, I was thinking about this person's sad moral choices, and I finally took it off my playlist, and I just realized the associations overwhelmed my emotional capacity to still appreciate the gift.
2: Yeah, let me ask you about that you know I, I have found just personally these questions come up you know in two different senses one uh, is kind of the moral failure uh, area that, that you've mentioned and then the other one is uh, someone who has changed their views to areas that I believe are wrong or hurtful or you know who someone who has changed their mind in a way that I think goes away from the truth but their earlier works are still very solid I, I guess I wrestle with um sometimes whether my reaction to those works is 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 different you know it, you know uh, with with moral failure i think there's always this kind of hope of redemption uh, you know we ran a story in ct once uh, once where there was a a pastor a very popular pastor his sermons were one of the most popular uh, podcasts on iTunes who you know experienced moral failure and was removed from uh, pastoral ministry but the church various people asked the church please don't take off uh, his sermons from 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 iTunes because they're still ministering to us and and we're sad to hear about your you know what this is doing your congregation but the teaching is still is still solid. Paul says that the teacher will be
3: judged more strictly and so I do think there's a finer filter for those who profound doctrinal errors such as this one I would say and uh, their teaching has to be judged more strictly. I remember, for example, Ted Haggard, the former head of NAE for those of you with long enough memories, and he he preached an absolutely brilliant sermon from the Book of Judges that we ran on our Preaching Today series, and it was about the sin of Achan, and it was titled, How Much Is Your Sin Going to Cost Me? And it was about how the community suffers when one believer sins. Hmm. Well, <laughs> as it right. turned Perfect. out, yeah. that title became a prophetic indictment of his own life, and the entire evangelical community ended up having to say to Ted, How Much Is Your Sin Going to cost me well anyway as brilliant as that title was and as amazing as his exegesis of Aiken's uh you know text was we took it down from the site it was just it was almost comic um it was it was so close but I do think teachers are judged more strictly and so even though I think I'll still be able to benefit from just about everything that uh, Eugene has done if he brings out more teaching or new teaching I'll be less likely to pick it up I have to admit.
2: I I wonder, um, is there a difference as well with Peterson's most famous work being a Bible? In one sense, it's a unique case, but in another sense, it's it's less—this is inaccurate—but less unique (laughs) than than it it was at the time. I mean, you have uh, uh, N.T. Wright has his own uh, New Testament now. Uh, David Bentley Hart uh, is coming out with a New uh, Testament translation in October. Uh, The Voice is kind of a Christian uh, celebrity uh, Bible. For me personally— it seems like I have a different relationship to the message than I do to the uh, to the Erdman's uh, Spiritual Theology Series.
3: Yeah, you know, I actually think uh, I'll still be able to use the message. I think it's a brilliant piece of work. Um, you know, that said, though, it's really interesting in the light of today's news— Within the past week, I happened to be reading Romans 1 from the message. And as I went through, without any of this, of course, in my mind whatsoever, I got to uh, Paul's indictment where he says, Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. This is from Romans 1 in the message. Women with women, men with men, all a dash, all lust, no love. And I paused there briefly, and here's the thought that went through my mind. That's a very interesting translation, Eugene, because it implies that the problem was not that it was against natural law or natural order, which seems to be, as I read it, Paul's intended teaching, but is more the sort of inner disposition of the heart. Was it lustful or was it loving? And it seemed to leave open a little bit of room that if women were with women in a loving way and a non-lustful way, however, that may be defined, it's not made clear here, then maybe there would be room for it. And I had never before noticed that there seemed to be a little bit of loophole room um, opened up in Eugene's translation. Now, he may not have translated it this way with any of that in mind. I have no idea. I wasn't there. Um, But it's, it's... Kind of odd that I just had that experience a couple days ago so I yeah I would definitely I wouldn't be able to read Romans one in quite the same way because now I can't help but read loopholes into it but you know his is the, the most of the translation is just a, a seminal and brilliant piece of work and I personally will continue to use it.
2: Yeah. And you know, one of the things that strikes me about the message is how much he has reintroduced in there the connection between broken sexuality and idolatry. Mm. Uh, if you look mm-hmm. at his uh you know, a lot of his old testament work, if it's a sex god or fertility god, like he 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 says it even if it's not in most English translations. Right. Um, and just uh kind of driving home this idea that our idolatry and our sex our broken sexuality are usually yeah uh, they connected. Travel together. They travel together. I mean that that's been helpful just you know, to me personally, reading the message and uh, making it much more you know fresh rather than, I don't know who uh, this, this particular God was or what they were known for, but uh, that translation has been, been helpful in, in making it current and relevant. Or, relevant, not, <laughs> not, sorry to <laughs> yeah. use a Nazi term, but yeah. there you go.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter, Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
1: You know, one of the discussions that we've been having on our website, among other places, are just questions of authority, who gets to kind of like speak for different movements and so forth. I'm just wondering if we can back up for a second and ask about, again, how Christians um, should be considering who they're giving authority over their spiritual life. It sounds like you had a personal relationship with Eugene, but it wasn't at the same time. Like you were, he was your personal pastor, and that you went to his no, church. And in no
3: way. And I, I don't want to overplay this. The fact that I've interviewed him multiple times does not mean we were friends. We didn't correspond on a personal relationship. He's been uh, a hero of mine from afar because he's so shaped my thinking. Well, you know, this is this is an important moment, I think, for the evangelical movement and that is our ecclesiology and our epistemology are being challenged, and uh, maybe much to our chagrin, perhaps, I don't know, but it just so happens that they're primarily being challenged on these issues of human sexuality. That seems to be the cultural issue that is driving these questions. And what I mean by that is this. The typical evangelical says, I go to my Bible, I read it, and I kind of get to make up my own mind as to what it means. And if I'm really confused, then I go to the teaching celebrity of my choice, be it Rob Bell or John MacArthur, and I follow whatever they believe. Okay, well, on an issue like human sexuality that goes so deeply to our, our Christian anthropology, to sexuality, and ultimately, it does touch the gospel, I don't think that's going to cut it. And so, honestly, we we need a more humble epistemology where we say, how has the church, spoken on these issues over time. And, you know, the, the classic Vincentian canon, what has been believed by all believers everywhere at all times. And the fact is that no one until a few smart evangelicals in the last 10 or 15 years ever thought that homosexual activity among believers should be sanctioned in the church. No one thought that. I think we need a stronger view of the church. We need a greater humility in our own epistemology to place ourselves under the church. And uh, until we do that, until we stay in this sort of individual reading under individual celebrity leadership, we're going to continue to have moments just like
2: this right here. Uh, apparently, Eugene has thought this for a while uh, and just you know hadn't been asked about it in a four-publication interview, which to me and a few people on Twitter have, have, have raised the question of, you know, there's probably a number of other people who are kind of in that mode. Um, and they're like, I kind of hope that we kind of move through this quickly where people kind of take a stance one way or another and we just kind of, like, this whole drip drip, drab is kind of uh, frustrating. I don't know that every you know, everyone needs to, uh, you know, fill out a form somewhere. But I do, I do think, you know, it's important for pastors to be clear with their congregations. But I do wonder about, uh, we deal with all sorts of writers, we deal with all sorts of just uh, speakers who, sexuality is not in their focus point, but they are, have some sort of leadership gifting. They're leading somebody out there. Used to be at a place called Leadership Journal. What do you you think about the idea that, you know, at this stage, everybody should just stand up and be counted and make some sort of public findable statement (laughs) somewhere so we can move, move through this conversation quickly?
3: I just don't think that's the way people work. People are in process and they come to these conclusions at different moments and they come ready to go public at different moments. And, you know, that's just the way it is. That said, though, Ted, I think you're raising something really important, which is this, Whether we wanted it to be or not, this is a watershed moment for the Christian church in our time. In 19th century America, it was over the issue of slavery. The Baptists split over slavery. The Methodists split. Over slavery, the Presbyterians split over slavery, and they were hermeneutical questions, and they had different hermeneutics for how they approached those. Ultimately, one side is now being judged by the church to have gotten it right. Well, maybe a hundred years from now, we'll look back and we'll have a different perspective than we do now. But I'm staking my claim where I'm staking it, <laughs> and uh, I'm staying with the scriptures that brought me here and brought me to Christ. Uh, you know, I think we've actually gotten into a really con- a confusion about what compassion means. Here's my my belief, and I say this as, as a pastor with tremendous—I'm I'm seeing faces of people in my mind right now, even as I say this, and my heart is so tender toward them. Every single person in my church has to carry the cross in the area of his or her sexuality. There isn't a person who doesn't. And I, I mean, okay, so I've got single, straight woman wanting to be married is not— is trying to live a celibate life only because she fell in love with Jesus Christ and felt like he was worth that to her. I have to do everything I can to support that person. This the gay man who's who feels lonely and isolated and but has chosen again because of the way of Jesus Christ and his his following of the scriptures to live a celibate life. I will do whatever it takes to support that person in his life in Christ. The married person whose partner is physically disabled such that sexual relations are no longer even possible, and that person has to daily bear the burden of that person's disability as well as their own longings, I will do whatever I can to support that person in their life in Christ. And now today we're saying in the church, oh, it's too bad your impulses aren't gay because then we're going to give you a free pass. What have we done? We've lost our pastoral way. I mean, it is not compassionate to take away from a believer in Jesus Christ the cross that unites them with Jesus Christ. Even your married people in healthy midlife. I mean, marriage is an all but one celibacy, and there are days where the one that one person is the person who hurts you the most and drives you nuts. And so it it also has a cross to bear. And then, Lord willing, procreation is a part of marital sexuality, and so then the children are a cross to bear in various ways. I think we need to 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 stop thinking, as the culture does, that homosexuality is the only frustrated sexual experience for the human believer. Everybody carries that cross, and I will support each one in, in carrying that cross.
2: We want to bear that cross together. And yet at the same time, our sexuality is also deeply personal and private. There's a reason that Eugene Peterson, 20 years ago, may not have known people in his congregation who were called to to bear certain crosses, you have an obligation as a as a pastor. You know you are obviously much more aware of situations in your church than I would be as just a, a member in that church. What are the ways that I can help people bear that cross if I'm not always aware of who's bearing it?
3: Well, one thing uh, that we need in the Christian community is a level of knowing and being known that opens up to that person our own struggles, the crosses that we're carrying, and feebly, but feebly doing it. And so that's part of it. Part of it is having meals together. Part of it is is living a life that's so rich in community that it provides an alternative uh, experience of what that life means. And and, and it takes on a richness. You know, I've thought about this in terms of four paths that people take that I've had a chance to pastor. You know, the first, the path A, I call it, is for those who say the way of Jesus is just too hard for me. I cannot live with the sexual uh, requirements or restrictions involved, and so I'm leaving the way of Jesus, and I'm going into the gay community. And so my response pastorally is to maintain the friendship to the extent possible, to stay connected on Facebook, to stay connected relationally as we can, because I want that person to know I I love him or her, I don't have any ill will. I disagree with their choice, but they know that about me because they know where I stand, and we've had conversations, right? And so I just want to try to maintain the friendship if possible. Path B is that person we've been talking about earlier on the podcast who's trying to live the celibate life and needs the support of the community, and they need to know that I'm with them, okay? So in pastoral conversation, they can find that out. In the way I treat issues from the pulpit, is there compassion mixed with clarity? Is there clarity and charity? People read you. They can pretty quickly tell whether you like them, whether you have animus toward them, whether this is about you, whether there's a true love for them, et cetera. So I will, and I will move heaven and earth for that person. I'm part of a denomination where many of the leaders gave up pensions. They were defrocked. They were taken to court they lost their buildings, to be able to support that person. So there is, I hope, no cost that I would be unwilling to pay for that person. Path C are those people for whom uh, they've had homosexual uh, experience and inclinations, and now they've found their sexuality somewhat shifting and somewhat shifting toward heterosexuality. Now, 20 years ago, the evangelical movement made those people everything and said that was the way. And now I think we We've almost switched completely the opposite way, pendulum-wise, and said that's not even possible nor wise. But there's an inherent contradiction, isn't there? I mean, the whole gay movement has brought to our attention that sexuality is somewhat changeable and almost infinitely malleable if we read their blogs. And, and yet the one direction it can never change is from gay to straight. And actually, I have a number of friends who are living that way. And you know what they want? They want their privacy. They do not want to be poster children. They just want to get on with their new life, with the challenges and blessings appertaining thereto. And so I think the best thing we can do is not put them up on the stage and just love them in a quiet way and let them be. Now, the Path D, though, is the interesting path. And this is the new path for our time. The people on Path D are saying, I want to live active, gay, sexual life and be in the church, and you, the church, should change your teachings for me. And if you don't, you're not affirming, You're not welcoming, you're mean-spirited, you're pharisaical, you're hypocritical, and besides, you gave a pass to divorce, you gave a pass to—and it's the whole inconsistency defense. And frankly, it's not hard to use the inconsistency defense, because in many ways, the evangelical church has been inconsistent. So I actually wrote a a piece for CT pastors called Consistent Sexual Sacrifice, in which I talk about how pastors need to be consistent in, in their approach. Um, And so if I'm not willing, honestly, to have that hard, awkward conversation with the college student who's sleeping with his girlfriend and tell him that's got to stop, then I have no right to talk to anyone else in the parish either. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we, we all need to walk this way of Jesus together. It's not an easy way, but it is the Jesus way.
1: How are you having those conversations, though, when when they are saying this is our Jesus way?
3: Actually, I've had that conversation not so long ago. One of the people that I was talking to said to me, so you want our church to be welcoming and not affirming, which was her language for approving of homosexual activity as part of the Christian life. And I said, yes. And I said, and I hear you saying, because we'd been listening deeply to each other, that that doesn't feel welcoming to you. And they said, yes. And I said, well, Here's where we stand with scripture, tradition, our whole family as a church, as a denomination. I'm not able to change that. Even if I were personally convinced that's the best interpretive lens, which I'm not. I, I'm not able to. And then in love, they have to make their decision and I have to make mine, you know? And so those are tough conversations. They take it out of me. Hmm. I mean, those are, those are kryptonite to me. I mean, I, I feel it because I care about these people so much, but everybody's going to have to make their choice.
2: What about people in the congregation who are not? themselves wanting to be in a same sex uh, relationship, but who are very vocally
3: supportive of it. You know, that's a tough one. And I think every group of pastors and elders needs to work that one out. In my own mind, here's the way I frame it up. And I'm not saying this because I think it's the only way or best way, but it's just what I've come to, which is if you are not a member, if you're just an attender, I need to give you the freedom to come to your own conclusions over time and be shaped by the preaching of the word. And so I'm going to let you basically sound off on Facebook and say what you want pretty much. If you choose to become a member, then I think it's very confusing to you, to the other members of our church, and to people considering this church, for you to be teaching in a way that's contrary to our own church's teachings. So at that point, then I would say, would you be willing to take down those Facebook posts or amend them, or, or you know, at least make it clear that this is not the teaching of the church now that you're choosing to join?
2: You know, uh, it's one thing as a congregant to say, you know, I think differently. Our church te- thinks differently. Here's why I think think that biblically. I do wonder there's me as, you know, editorial director of Christianity Day, here's what I think. I can speak a lot about that just as to some, you know, Joe, Joe Christian or just Joe on the street. It does take a slightly different cast if it's someone who I am Uh, in a congregation with, where we're in the same family attempting to kind of uh, live a life of mutually encouraging discipleship together.
3: That is difficult. I I think the best way pastors can support that, because pastors don't have time or inclination to go person by person and do interviews. I'm not interested in any of that. I mean, I think people are in process and are thinking these thoughts through. But I think what pastors can do is make clear, here's where our church stands, here's why we stand there. And, and here's our, our heart of compassion for all. Here's our level of consistency in the way we treat these things. And then people have to make up their minds. So if we have... Clarity, compassion, and consistency. Oh my gosh, I'm in the moment. I'm preaching. This is alliterating, and it's three points. (laughs) So if we have that, then I feel comfortable that we've done our pastoral work, and then we need to let our people kind of find their way there.
1: I think that one of the biggest perennial questions that I see come up when it's a big name in the evangelical circuit has um, announced they're changing their mind is why this is seen as the issue rather than a issue. Do you think there is room for disagreement within evangelicalism, about whether this needs to be a issue versus the issue?
3: I don't. You know, honestly, and I know, you know, today in, today's podcast is focused on this, and I've spoken to it and been passionate about it. But honestly, as a pastor, this is not front and center for me. I don't have a particular animus or interest or, you know, take in this. But here's the reality, Morgan, in the way I view it. This is the line that the battle was drawn in our day, so it would be like a fourth-century pastor going, why do we have to talk about Arius all the time? Why do we have to care that there was a time when he he was not, Christ was not? And the answer is, is because that is the moment, that that issue is being decided by the Church. This is our moment this is our time, this is one we're going to have to speak to, whether we wanted to or not. And frankly, I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of emotional energy But for this, but it is the issue of our time, and we must get clear. And where it touches is it touches the nature of holiness, it touches the nature of sexuality, it touches the nature of the gospel. Is the Spirit of God enough to bring courage, enough for celibacy— is the Spirit of God enough that we could actually say in some of our parishes, and such were some of you? Is the Spirit of God enough to bring a changed life? Where are we getting—it also asks, where are we getting our authority? Is it coming from the New York Times editorial page, or is it coming from the Apostle Paul and the prophets and and, and the whole of scriptural teaching for, for millennia? And so I wish it weren't, but it is.
1: One pushback to that could be, well— the answer to that not letting be the thing that divides everyone is to not let it divide you, if that makes sense. Or how does it cease to be that main issue anymore? And I'm just trying to think in terms of other moments in church history, how something has not has gone from being like the hot topic to kind of like fading away. It seems like going back to the slavery topic, the answer to that was a civil war in our country. You you mentioned one in the earlier or in the early church. How did that one stop being the issue?
3: Yeah, with the 4th century battle over arianism, there was a time actually where the arian congregations were much more numerous, more supported by the emperor, stronger in every way than the beleaguered uh, orthodox congregations. Ultimately orthodoxy triumphed, improbably, through the courage of Athanasius. It was, you know, like we say, it was Athanasius against the world. And so uh, God will raise up people who will be strong, despite the fact that the cultural flow is going quite against uh, orthodoxy on this matter. And then it was also a church council, actually a couple church councils that framed this up. Um, So I think we'll probably have something of the same, Uh, courageous leadership by certain prophetic voices that are raised up, and then also perhaps councils
2: in In one sense, uh we don't call them Aryans anymore, but there's still Aryan beliefs out there, and it's nice to be able to point to things that say no we we already we already decided on that one, but right? some of these disputes never really quite uh, entirely vanish just because falsehood presents itself in many different well, it does seem like over over some again. way
1: that it happens though is that something just becomes a separate movement,
2: yes, for sure,
1: and so it does live on. As something else. It's right. Just not the Jehovah's
2: same. Witnesses still exist as a separate thing, but people don't tend to lump them in as uh, evangelical Christians, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, everyone, for chiming into this discussion. For all of our listeners who, we're sure, have thoughts and potentially questions, you can feel free to ask those on Facebook and Twitter. We're on Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Mm-hmm is the time of show we call Precious Moments, which is when I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week. And if you can also share your social media handle, too, that would be great. Kevin, are you ready?
3: I'm getting close to my uh, summer vacation, looking forward to a road trip and seeing some friends and family. And uh, I've already figured out some audiobooks I want to play in the car. And so life is Which good. Which ones are those? Uh, we downloaded uh, A Man Called Uva, the uh, Frederick Bachman uh, uh, Swedish uh, novel about the cantankerous uh, guy next door. Yeah. and Have, you, have uh, you seen the movie already or not? No, we have not. So I, I like to get books first before yes, I go to the sure. movie
2: if I can.
1: Awesome. Ted?
2: I am looking forward to going home tonight to my many boxes from uh, Amazon <laughs> Prime Day. <laughs> I actually <have laughs> what suggested, did you get? I suggested that we do a thing about it. I. I have I have many complicated views about amazon i'm really worried about amazon's takeover of many things but at the same time those deals at prime day were pretty awesome so i got you know 250 200 bucks worth of uh, board games for about 50 bucks uh, or less i got one book i've been wanting or uh, one game i've been wanting for about three dollars pretty happy about that so uh, i'm looking forward to going home and busting open some board games and playing them with my uh with my friends and family. So.
3: so is it amazing that this impersonal juggernaut is leading to better family community for you?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Alexa, make me a better dad or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't
1: know. Are you guys, either of you guys on Twitter?
2: I
3: No, I, I am technically, but I never look at it. But you can reach out to me on, on uh, Facebook or you can also um, uh, reach me through my Christianity Today address, which is Miller at christianitytoday.com.
2: Right. And we can, as I said earlier, you can also find Kevin on his own podcast. Podcast, where would we find that?
3: iTunes Store or Stitcher? It's called Monday Morning Preacher.
2: Awesome. I am at Ted Olson on uh, on Twitter.
1: So this is a weird thing to bring me joy, but I am still thinking about the sermon that I heard about the Old Testament from church on Sunday.
2: What was it on? It
1: was on First Kings when I believe the, it's the end of the first chapter, the beginning of the second, when Solomon is eliminating his political rivals, and I thought that our pastor did a great job of just sitting with the tension of that piece um, where some of these guys, Solomon goes ahead and has them assassinated and some of them he grants mercy and some of them he grants mercy for a little while. Yeah, there was just a lot of like wrestling with the complexity of this piece and the violence that was used and the whole of the Old Testament and the violence that was used. A strong attempt to help us not figure that feel that we had to explain away everything that is in the Old Testament, but to be able to read the Old Testament collectively in context of the New Testament, and it just made me think a lot about reading Scripture and dealing with complex passages. So anyway, I just feel really happy that we're doing this series on the Old Testament, just someplace that I have not spent a ton of time in.
2: Nice. Now I feel obligated, since my pastor is sitting right next to me, that I should say, yep, (laughs) my my pastor's servant uh, (laughs) this weekend was pretty awesome too, but yeah, one-up you. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, why wasn't that your
1: precious moment? All right. People can find me on Twitter at MEPAYNL. That is it for us this week. Thank you to everyone who listened to the podcast. Again, if you have feedback, we are welcome to it. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcasts and on Twitter at ct podcasts. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. It's also available wherever you get them. And Apple Podcasts, though, is the best place to rate and review the show. Thank you to our producers, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. We will see you all next week.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.